Now, let me remind you that last night we stopped at the uh, tragic situation in Judah as the exile to Babylon, which had been prophesied for so long by Isaiah and Jeremiah, actually happened. And the Bible leaves us in no doubt as to why these exiles of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon occurred. Uh, Again, having followed the course through, you'll be familiar with this, and uh, in a way we're now prepared to understand this much better. But uh, it would be worthwhile, I think, just reminding ourselves of what God says through the prophet Hosea to the northern kingdom before their exile to Assyria. Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You have loved the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. That's a reference, you see, to their idolatry, their immorality, and the social disintegration, and the land curses that fall upon them. And verse 3 of Hosea 9, they will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, will return to Egypt and will eat unclean food in Assyria. That's a typical prophetic statement. It doesn't mean that they're literally going back to the bondage of Egypt under Pharaoh, but they will go back to an experience of bondage. In this case, it will be in Assyria. It will be like returning to Egypt. It will be like being before the Exodus, because they have refused to follow the ways of the Lord. And those other references which I commend to you for Israel in Hosea and for Judah in Isaiah and Jeremiah make the same point. They are going back to the pre-Exodus situation. And as we shall see this morning, therefore there will need to be a new Exodus if the people of God are going to experience his restoring grace. They've broken the covenant and they've brought themselves into a new bondage to sin because of their disobedience and their unfaithfulness. They will be scattered among the nations and there must be a new work of God if the situation is to be restored. Now the problem was, and Jeremiah 7, the last reference there, refers to this, that they have become complacent and overconfident. And I think there's a word of warning for New Covenant Christians in this too. You see, what happened was they thought they could presume on the covenant promises without fulfilling the covenant obligations. That is, they said, God has said he will have an eternal kingdom. David's line will never end. He's promised that he'll never let us go, that we are his people forever. Therefore, it doesn't really matter what we do. And so uh, we can sin, we can worship Yahweh, we can worship other gods, we can have uh, immoral practices, our society can be riddled with greed and corruption. We're the covenant people, we're safe. Nothing is ultimately going to happen to us. And you know that happens sometimes, doesn't it? In Christian circles, it's usually called antinomianism. The situation where people think the law is no longer relevant, uh, paraphrasing and parodying the old hymn, I am free from the law, oh happy condition, I can sin as I like and still find remission. People tend to think like that because we've all got a fallen nature. It's in all of us. And these passages are saying to us, don't presume on covenant grace unless you fulfill covenant obligations. It's not that your obedience persuades God to bless you. That would be works religion. But it is by obedience that we keep the channel of God's blessing open. It doesn't get clogged up with our sin and our rebellion. That's faith religion. 
And what they learnt in the Old Testament, we need to learn in parallel in the New. Well, let's look for a little while then at Jeremiah and then at Ezekiel. Poor old Jeremiah's had a terrible press, and it's totally undeserved as far as I can see. I think he's a wonderful man. And I think he was a great encourager of the faithful and a faithful warner of those who were rebellious. He was called to prophesy in the year 627, and his ministry lasted about 40 years until the fall of Jerusalem. What was the content of Jeremiah's ministry? Well, let me just pick out five main themes. That's all we can do, really. It was an attack on religious sins, on idolatry, on the formal ritualism, on their complacency, on ignorant priests and false prophets, all the religious paraphernalia of Judaism that have become infected by their rebellion against God. He attacks that consistently. But not only religious sins, secondly, he delineated social evils, just as Amos and Hosea and Isaiah had done. Injustice, inequity, exploitation. The people had forgotten the demands of sincerity and righteousness, which a righteous God had built into his covenant. So instead of caring for the widow and the orphan, and instead of uh, looking after the poor, they exploited them. Because their heart was wrong, religiously, their society was wrong in its practice. C, he made dramatic calls for repentance. Jeremiah had a great heart for people. He was moved by the situation. There's no coldness about him. Um, his pessimism, of course, for which he's famous, is because he is the last prophet before the exile and God reveals to him that the exile is going to happen. So he wasn't in the least bit popular. But he made great calls, great pleas to the people. Chapter 13, chapter 18, you can look them up. Great calls for repentance. Come back to God while there is time. Fourthly, he saw God's judgments, God's testings, as the way to repent and the way to a recovery of the covenant relationship. He's never negative in that sense of saying it's all up. He's saying these things may happen, indeed they will happen because you're so stubborn, but through them all, there is a way by which you may return to God and find his forgiveness. And of course, one of the key passages of that is the famous 31st chapter of Jeremiah with the promise of the new covenant. Nice easy reference to remember, Jeremiah 31:31. 31, 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke that covenant. No, this is the covenant I will make, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail over the page, but that note of expectation of the new covenant, the new hope, is all the way through Jeremiah. And fifthly, his ministry is characterized by great personal suffering. He was reviled, he was imprisoned, as you know. He was denounced um, because, he said, the city's going to fall, you might as well surrender. It's no good fighting against God's will. But he himself suffered greatly for his faithfulness. Now, among his contemporaries were Habakkuk and Zephaniah, but outstanding among them was Ezekiel, who was taken off to Babylon in the first deportation that happened in the year 597. 
Do you remember last night we saw that uh, there were two stages by which the city of Jerusalem was conquered. The Babylonians first invaded Judah in 597, and then later, after further rebellion, they swept in and destroyed the city in 587. Well, in 597, Ezekiel was among the group of young men. He, of course, was a, of the priestly family, taken off to Babylon and deported. And so Ezekiel's ministry, beginning at 593 and going through to 571, is a ministry of encouragement to the exiles in Babylon. That's where his ministry is focused. Some of it happens, the first 24 chapters, before the fall of Jerusalem in 587, uh, some of it is directed against the foreign nations, chapters 25 to 32, and some of it looks forward after the fall of Jerusalem, 33 to 48, uh, to what God is yet going to do with his people. So when they went into exile, they took with them the prophecy of Isaiah, which as we shall see in a few minutes spoke about a new exodus and new hope. They took with them the prophecy of Jeremiah that the time is coming when God will write his covenant not on tablets of stone, but in their hearts and on their minds. And they found there, when they got there, Ezekiel's prophecy that God was going to pour out his spirit upon them and renew his people and recall them to the land and rebuild the temple. So that in the midst of the exile experience, there is constant hope through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, whom we call the major prophets of the Old Testament. Their, their message is one of salvation, even through the judgment. So under Ezekiel stage one, before the fall of Jerusalem, he prophesied that it would happen and he interpreted to the exiles with him in Babylon the events that overtook Jerusalem. God gave him special insight, divine understanding of what was happening. In that sense, he was a seer. A seer is someone who sees. God gave him visions of what was happening in Jerusalem and he interpreted that to the exilic community. His call in chapters one to three is an indescribably intense encounter with the God of majesty and holiness. Do you remember how in that strange first chapter of Ezekiel, he sees the throne of God, as it were, lifting up and taking off from Jerusalem and coming down to Babylon. Now that is a very important vision because it says God isn't restricted by geography. Jerusalem may have fallen, the land may be laid waste, but God has not given up his people because God has not given up his promises. And so the throne moves from Jerusalem to the exile. God is with his people, even by the waters of Babylon where they sit down and weep. God is in their midst and he sends and anoints his prophet to speak his word to them. Well, as those uh, opening chapters, the first half of the book, deal with what was happening, he gives three parallel reviews of Israel's history. We don't have time to look at them, but if you're writing extra notes, you'll find they're in chapter 16, chapter 20, and chapter 23. Three long reviews of what's gone wrong with the people of God, the story of their persistent unfaithfulness. But he also stresses in his early ministry individual responsibility. And this is quite a different note. Um, of course, the individual has always been at the center of attention throughout Scripture because God started with one man, Abraham, and he's always dealt with individuals. But Ezekiel underlines the fact that in a time of gross apostasy amongst the people of God, every individual is responsible for his or her own heart. 
a man or a woman, suffer for their own sins. Uh, there is a corporate identity of the people of God, but the individual identity is also stressed. And the individual call to repent is also important. That's because God is gathering a remnant of faithful people. And what he is doing is calling out of the larger body of Judah and Israel, a remnant of people whose hearts are being touched by the Lord and who individually turn to him and are then, as it were, brought into this corporate identity of what is called the remnant, the faithful remnant, many of whom will eventually go back, or at least their descendants will, to refound Jerusalem. Then in the middle of Ezekiel's book, stage two, there are oracles against foreign nations. Now, he's not unique in that. Amos, chapters one and two, Isaiah, that long section, 13 to 23, and Jeremiah all address the other nations around. And this shows, you see, that even at this stage in the Old Testament, God is concerned for the nations. He is never simply the God of Israel. Always from uh, Genesis 12 onwards, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So the missionary concern of God doesn't suddenly start in the New Testament. He sends his witnesses into the nations. Jonah goes to Nineveh, much against his better judgment, but God gets him there, or his worst judgment, we might say. But all the time, God is concerned about the nations, you see. He wants them to know that he is the only true and living God. And so the prophets are raised up, and all of the major prophets have long sections in which they call the nations to recognize that Yahweh is Lord, and to stop sinning against him, and also to stop sinning against his people. Now, here there's an important theme, because God raises up Assyria and Babylon, and he describes them in the prophets as the rod of my anger. That is, these great nations that bring judgment upon Judah and Israel are not just there as political entities, and God is happening to sort of move the pawns around on the chessboard. He's saying, I've raised them up specifically to do my will. But that doesn't mean that their um, brutality and their godlessness can be excused. They are responsible. And in sinning against God's people, and of course some of the treatment that they meted out to them was extremely brutal, God holds them as responsible. There is a moral law that relates to the whole world, irrespective of whether people are in covenant relationship with God or not. So these oracles, Joel, Habakkuk, and uh, Zephaniah too, are sins against God's people as well as sins against God. And Ezekiel picks up those themes in the central part of his prophecy. But perhaps most significant of all, there is the third stage after Jerusalem's fall, which is a message of hope, and of reconciliation. Ezekiel is newly commissioned in chapter 33 as a watchman to lead people through despair, through the despair of the exile, to hope by the route of personal repentance. Reference Ezekiel 33, 17 to 20, which really opens up the whole theme of hope uh, in the rest of his prophecy. The restoration will come as an act of God to vindicate his name, and there are three things that will happen. We must just look up this reference. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verses 24 to 26. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Look at, here's the content of the promise. Expanded in many other ways in these chapters, but here in summary form. For God says, I will take you out of the nations... And I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. So there's going to be a return. 
the land will be restored. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Cleansing. Restoration. New worship of Yahweh. A ditching of the old idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So there will be a new return to the land, a new cleansing, a new heart, and a new spiritual endowment, a new power of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is within you? Because you keep God's laws. That's the sign of the Holy Spirit at work, making us like Jesus, helping us to live in obedience to God's commands. Whatever other signs there may be, that's the indisputable evidence of the Holy Spirit, that we live holy lives. So after Jerusalem's fall, there is this enormous hope ahead of them. Return, cleansing, a new heart, a new spiritual order, and a new unity under one Davidic king. Just look across the page, chapter 37, the vision of the dry bones and the restoration of the life of the nation. And at the end of the vision, verse 24, 37, 24, my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. So a Davidic king, a faithful shepherd, the old divisions disappearing, a new unity and a new eternal covenant uh, which God will make with his people. And then chapters 40 to 48 are the vision of the rebuilt city and the rebuilt temple. It's obviously a highly symbolic vision. It relates to the vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation right at the end of the Bible, but it speaks about God dwelling with his people in perfect harmony, in order, where the worship of God is central, where the river of life flows through the city. And the very last verse of Ezekiel's prophecy actually summarizes it in a wonderful way. The name of the city, this is chapter 48, verse 35, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. See, that's what God is working for. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will dwell among you. There will be unbroken fellowship. That was Eden. This is Eden restored. The name of the city will be the Lord is there. It's a wonderful promise. And you can imagine that if you were in exile in Babylon and you received this ministry, how it would renew your faith, how it would encourage you to look forward to what God is going to do. And how you would remember that Isaiah had prophesied all this and had spoken about a new exodus, and a new covenant, and a new nation. So let's turn the page and spend a, two, a moment or two on this expectation of hope, which is such a great gospel theme uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah, of course, is a study in, in, in himself, um, uh, and we can't do justice to Isaiah. I'm a great uh, um, lover of the prophecy of Isaiah, and... Uh, let me commend it to you. Um, it's 66 chapters, which is like the 66 books of the Bible. It divides at 39, which is how the Old Testament and the New Testament divides, 39 books and 27 books. And it's very interesting, just, I don't suppose that's very significant, but it's an interesting fact. And at chapter 40, having announced the exile to Babylon, immediately God gives to Isaiah prophecies from 40 onwards of a new exodus and a new hope. Comfort my people, says your God. 
The word means strengthen my people. Uh, comfort is coming alongside to help and strengthen. We tend to think of comfort as cups of coffee and your feet on the mantelpiece. It's all to do with fabric condition as comfort, isn't it? But comfort here is strengthening. Why? Well, because, verse 2, her hard service has been completed. There will be an end to the exile. Her sin has been paid for. She's received double for all her sins. That is more than enough of her suffering has been completed. And at that point, God says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, all the language here is about a new exodus. Here they are, in uh, remote from Israel, having to come through the wilderness, verse 3, on a great highway that God will make. Verse 4 is all about motorway works. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain will be made low. There's going to be a great flat new motorway that will bring the people of God back from exile into the land that God promised he would give them. And he will restore them. The rough ground will become level, the rugged places are plain, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So to the exile community, the message comes, and you can follow it through those other references in Isaiah, about a new exodus. Now, when did that happen? Well, some of them did come back. Cyrus gave them permission, eventually, the Persian conqueror of Babylon, to return to Jerusalem, and a group came back, and they eventually rebuilt the temple in Haggai and Zechariah's time, and they eventually rebuilt the walls in Nehemiah's time. But it wasn't a very glorious return. It was a, a return, and there was a community there, and over the centuries it strengthened, but they went through tremendous hardships and privations when they went back, and all sorts of problems and difficulties. It wasn't really like this glorious return that Isaiah talks about. So when was this prophecy fulfilled? Well, when a voice was heard calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. See, the fulfillment is through John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Jesus. That's why he used this passage. The exodus happens when Jesus comes. That's when the new exodus occurs. Now, it happens to an extent that they're restored after Babylon, but it's only a very limited fulfillment. It's when John the Baptist says, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Passover Lamb for the whole of humankind that the prophecy of Isaiah begins to be fulfilled and the new exodus begins to open up. See how the Bible fits together as one book all the time. And it's through him that the Davidic promises are, are fulfilled, as we shall see. But at this point, it's there as a great expectation. There's going to be a new exodus. It's not the end of the road. There will be a way out of Babylon, just as there was out of Egypt. And there will be a great highway prepared through the desert to bring God and his people back. Because you see, in Isaiah 40, it's God who's coming back. Prepare in the desert a highway for our God. And as the messengers see this great entourage steaming across the desert, Storming Norman had nothing on this, as you have this picture of God steaming across the desert, you see, with his people, coming back in victory, they shout from housetop to hilltop to village to town, Here is your God, you who bring good tidings to Zion. Lift up your voice. God is coming. That's the expectation. He's, his throne has gone to Babylon. He's left Jerusalem. But he's coming back and he's bringing his people with him. And he's going to establish his kingdom of righteousness and peace. Just look at verses 10 and 11. We can't go on without those two because they're such key verses. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. 
he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So the God who is coming back is both the sovereign and the shepherd. He is both the ruler and the provider. And the whole of the rest of Isaiah really picks up those two themes. He's the sovereign Lord. He's the shepherd king. You can trust him. He knows all about you. He has all the power to be able to provide for his people everything they need. And he has the intimate shepherd care of every one of his flock members. And he knows us by name. A new exodus, a new start with this gracious God. And a new covenant. I won't stop on that because we've looked at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah has the same note in 59. A new beginning, that is. And Jesus, when he says, this is the blood, my blood, of the new covenant, is showing that he is the fulfillment of that promise. That, yes, there was a new start in Jerusalem, but very limited. Now there is a new covenant that embraces those of every nation who turn to him in repentance and faith. And that means, thirdly, that there will be a new nation. There will be the faithful people who will return to the land and who will rebuild the temple and restructure the city. But, of course, we also know that that new nation is going to be much greater than simply the sons of Abraham by physical descent. It's going to take in all the nations of the world into the holy nation that is God's covenant people. And in the new covenant, that is fulfilled. So that in the church of Jesus Christ, gathered from every tribe and kindred and nation, and made one people through the blood of our Passover lamb, the promise of the new nation is fulfilled. Now, that comes out very clearly in the way in which the Lord Jesus describes himself as the true vine, the real vine. See, the vine's a picture of Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, they all refer to Israel as a vine that God took out of Egypt and planted. And he came looking for grapes, looking for good fruit from his vine, and he found, well, the Hebrew in Isaiah 5 says he found yuck. The word actually sounds like what he found. Sour grapes, yuck. But Jesus says, I am the real vine. See, I'm the true Israel. I'm the son of God who fulfills everything that Israel failed to be. And I will graft you into the stem of my vine as you trust me and obey me. And there will be a new people and a new stock. And yes, those who are believing from the old stock will be grafted in from Israel, and those who are Gentiles will together with believing Jews be one new people, because Christ himself is the real vine. Now, those great themes of hope run right the way through from old to new. They unite the Old and New Testament, because they point to all that the failure of Israel had highlighted. They could not be the people that God wanted them to be. And it was not until there was an, a, a dramatic change, a new vine, and someone, the Lord Jesus himself, who was able to change us from the inside out by putting his spirit within us, rather than simply giving us a law code that we need to live up to. It was only those changes in the gospel that could actually change and revolutionize the situation and produce a people who, at least potentially, can give glory to God by living lives of obedience to him. Well, the reality, section four, was, as I say, much less than that. And, of course, the Jews began to question, then, what do these prophecies mean? 
What actually happened was that eventually the Babylonian Empire fell to Cyrus, the Mede, and the Medo-Persian Empire, as it's usually called, began to take over as the world power. In the year 539, Babylon fell to Cyrus, and as he took over as world leader, he published a decree which allowed the Jews and other subject peoples who'd been taken into exile to go back home. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 45, where Cyrus is actually named by God centuries, well, certainly, um, I think it's centuries before it happened, uh, because Isaiah's an 8th century prophet, and we're dealing here with 6th century uh, history. And uh, I know there are people who say, well, of course, he couldn't have known the name of the deliverer 200 years before, but then do you believe in God or not? So Isaiah 45 tells us who the deliverer is going to be. And Cyrus is raised up by God, and he publishes his decree, allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And a small number go. Uh, it's a hard, difficult life when they arrive. Uh, the people who've remained, who have intermarried, and uh, uh, who have many of them adopted, again, foreign gods rather than the worship of Yahweh, resist them. There are all sorts of um, vested interests that don't want Jerusalem rebuilt. Um, but gradually, over a period of time, they at least begin to rebuild the temple. But because of the privations that they suffer, because they have poor harvests and crop failures are a frequent problem, and because there are only probably about, it's usually calculated, no more than 20,000 of them, the glory days of Jerusalem are not really restored at this stage at all. The Samaritans regard Judah as their territory, so they resist. The remnant that remained in the land didn't welcome the influx of these settlers from Babylon. They were absorbed with their pagan religion. The Persian Empire sent them out, but didn't really support them. And obviously they didn't have much money, many opportunities to actually rebuild. So that the glowing pictures of Isaiah and Ezekiel seemed very far removed from reality. And after 20 years, there was still no temple and there were no city walls. Then God uh, energizes them through the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah uh, to rebuild the temple. And eventually, later on, through Nehemiah and that marvelous book which tells his story, which is such a, an encouragement uh, in Christian work, they, uh, in the ministry of Malachi, the last prophet is around that time as well, they managed to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to develop some sort of community life. But the reality is far removed from the promise. Just time to look briefly at the post-exilic prophets, uh, Haggai and Malachi, over the page. Haggai's little book of two chapters, uh, delivered over four months in the year uh, 520, illustrates both the cause and the remedy. It led to the completion of the temple four years later. And you remember that Haggai's message is, firstly, that Yahweh is the Lord of hosts. He firstly teaches them the character of God. He controls heaven and earth. He is the worldwide ruler. Secondly, Yahweh never gives up his people. So he hasn't given them up, even though they're going through hard times. But thirdly, there is a strong call in the book to rebuild the temple. 
The reason they're in their present state, Haggai says, is that they've ceased to care about God's house. They've been far more interested in building their houses. Now he says to them, build and be blessed. If you launch out in faith, God will bless you. The temple, fourthly, the place of God's glory and God's presence, must be restored. The ruined temple is a blight on the nation. Yes, Yahweh is among them, the Lord is with them, but there must be a proper place where his worship can be re-established according to the sacrificial code. So the temple is essential if God is to be in the midst of his people. And lastly, there is a great promise in chapter 2 that the new temple will be enriched by the nations, that God will bring in the treasures of the nations to uh, the temple if his people are obedient to him. I think that finds its fulfillment in the gospel and in the nations of the world coming, of which, of course, we all are a part, to worship the Lord uh, in the temple, now not at Jerusalem, but, as it were, in the heavenly temple to which we have access through the work of Christ. So Haggai is saying, let's get on with the job. Let's make sure that the restoration happens, that here at the heart of the community there is a worshipping, um, honouring, sacrificial um, uh, uh, code by which God is exalted and praised. And Malachi, uh, a little bit later on, right at the end of the Old Testament, 80 years on from Haggai and Ze Zechariah, when times are still hard, calls the people again to be um, committed to God in their worship, to be prepared to sacrifice for him. He promises that God is going to come to judge and to refine his people. Uh, he tells them that uh, there is a better day ahead, but that when the refiner comes, who will be able to stand before him? Just look at those uh, last few references as we turn to the very end of the uh, Old Testament in Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, when all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. I will send you the prophet Elijah, verse 5, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It's often been said that the Old Testament ends with a curse, but notice that it is uh, a very conditional ending. It actually ends with great hope. Hope that the prophet Elijah will come, uh, and just as Elijah, we saw yesterday, called the people back from their idolatry. Who is God? If he's the Lord, worship him. So John the Baptist, as he came to fulfill that prophecy, prepared the way of the Lord, said, look, God is coming. Be ready for him. So Malachi, four centuries before the coming of Jesus, puts all that into perspective and uh, calls the people to be expectant about the deliverer. Now, all the way through these, uh, this period, the vision of perfection in terms of the Messiah is developed uh, throughout these Old Testament prophets. Um, let me spend my last ten minutes, really, looking at that section, number six, the vision of perfection, because there is so much here to encourage uh, our hearts and to strengthen our faith.
You see, this note of hope runs through all the messianic psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 45. In Psalm 2, the king installed is regarded by Yahweh as his son. He is potentially the ruler of the whole earth, Psalm 2 says, because he's the son of the covenant Lord who rules the nations. Yet we know that no monarch of Israel ever fulfilled that. Even great David, as we saw yesterday, was flawed. And so he was uh, unable to fulfill the promises of Psalm 2. They were looking forward to a Davidic king who would be a perfect king. Or just turn with me to the second of those references in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, a royal wedding psalm, which again clearly has messianic input. Your throne, O God, verse 6, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, the king is addressed in verse 6 as God. But immediately in verse 7, the king who is God also recognizes God. You see that? Your throne, O God, that's the king, will last forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. That's a great puzzle, isn't it? Till you see that the king who came was both perfect man and fully God. And that therefore the Lord Jesus could talk about his father as his God. But he also was himself the perfect Davidic king who in the person of the son fulfilled all the promises. Only the New Testament can resolve conundrums like that. And the Old Testament had to live with the tension. But you see, it was saying, there's a better day coming. There's something deeper here, something more glorious than you have ever yet seen. Seen. There will be a perfect Davidic king who will reign. You remember that lovely prophecy of Isaiah that we use in Christmas, uh, Christmas in our carol services. I wonder if you've ever stopped to really think about what it says. Unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9 verse 6, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it from that time on and forever. So you see, the prophecy is of an eternal king in the Davidic line who will be wonderful counselor. Now, if you look at those four titles in Isaiah 9, verse 6, they're made up of two parts each. One part stresses the divine, one part stresses the human. Wonderful is the name of God. The angel of the Lord appears, he says, my name is wonderful. He is referring to the fact that he represents God. It's a divine word, wonderful. Counselor is a human word. Mighty is a human word. God is a divine word. Everlasting is a divine word. Only God is everlasting. Father is a human word. Prince is a human word. Peace is a divine word. Shalom. Only God can give shalom. So in the very titles, the the identity of the son who is to be born is both divine and human. It's built in from Isaiah onwards. And so this perfect Davidic king to whom they are looking will not be just a mere man. He will also be son of God. Now that hope grew and grew as they saw that the earthly fulfillments were so partial. But he's not only the perfect king. Secondly, he's the perfect priestly servant. 
We read from Isaiah 53 earlier this morning, and what an appropriate passage that is. It's one of the most glorious, forward-looking passages in the whole of the Old Testament, how we need to preach Isaiah 53 over and over again to our own hearts, and indeed in our declaration of God's good news. This amazing description of crucifixion centuries before it actually happened. But look with me at verses 10 to 12 that underline the results of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Isaiah 53 verse 10. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now you see how the, the servant who suffers is the one who is raised after death. He will see his offspring prolong his days after his death. He will see the light of life after his suffering. And raised up by God, verse 12, he will divide the spoils with the strong. And because he poured out his life unto death and bore the sin of many, he will be raised and exalted as the king who was the priestly suffering servant. Now, that theme runs all the way through uh, Isaiah 53 and indeed other uh, parts of the servant songs in Isaiah. And uh, I do commend that to your study. If you want a very good book on that, uh, the book by the French um, writer Henri Blochet uh, on the songs of the servant is a, is a very useful little book uh, to help us into that. Well, the identity of the servant is not clear in Isaiah, but the work of the servant is, and we see that he's going to suffer and make atonement for the people of God. But there's another strand of expectation. Not only is he going to be the great Davidic king, not only will he be the suffering priestly servant who is both the offering and the one who makes the offering to God, priest and offering, but he will also be the perfect princely mediator. Uh, this is a function of Ezekiel's prophecy, and uh, it speaks of the royalty of the one who is to come, the fact that he will stand between man and God. Ezekiel 37, 26, I will make a covenant of peace. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And that is going to happen when God raises up this figure who will be the prince, who will stand, as it were, between God and the people. Now, that whole concept of the princely mediator fulfilling the covenant promises uh, is uh, an interesting sort of addition that Ezekiel makes in his writings. He's going to be the mediator for the people. He'll be the one who perpetually guarantees the access of his people to the presence of God. And so here is another ingredient of messianic expectation. Yes, he will be king. Yes, he will be suffering servant. Yes, he will be mediator. And he can do that because of his role as son and prince of the everlasting God. And all this will lead, lastly, in terms of the expectation, to the new creation, the perfect new creation that awaits. 
and uh, those passages in Isaiah towards the end, particularly chapter 65, which uh, have echoes in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, show that it's not just a figure who's being looked forward to, but that his ministry will develop a people, a community, a life of fellowship with God, a life of unhindered relationship with him, a life of joy and peace, a life summed up in that great 60th chapter of Isaiah, 61 to 3, where he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to this light, and kings to the brightness of this dawn. But they had to wait for it. And Malachi, the last prophet, four centuries before Christ, and then silence. And the Jewish nation going through an awful lot in the intertestamental period, suffering invasion again under the heel of the Greeks, under the heel of the Romans, waiting, waiting. And waiting, as the last section says, in wisdom. Now, I've overshot the time and there isn't really time to look at wisdom, but just to notice that it is an important theme in the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs, the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, they were all practical applications of the understanding of the covenant God and his purposes, relating them to everyday life. Uh, what the prophets had spoken of the truth of God was applied to the individual life in the light of experience. And um, it's essentially reflective, uh, thinking about how to live in God's world in relationship to him and how to wait while... Uh, God is working out his purposes. You remember how it talks about the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 1.7 is the beginning of wisdom. To make God uh, number one in our lives. To let God be God. To reverence him as God. That's how we wait for him to fulfill his purposes. The book of Job asks, asks the question, well, then why do godly people suffer? The book of Ecclesiastes asks the question, is there really any purpose in human life? Or is it just frustration and emptiness? Very practical questions. But they both come back ultimately to the godness of God and to the wisdom of allowing God to be God and to work out his sovereign will. They are cries from the Old Testament for a better world, for a deeper understanding, for a richer fellowship with God. The wisdom literature is... Yes, it's practical, it's working it out in everyday life, but it's really saying, oh, that there was something better than this. The world still waited for the revelation of the wisdom of God. And, of course, the New Testament says, Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it ends with a great expectation, but with a great emptiness. And it's not until we turn that one page that is uninspired, the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we find the answer.